Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Ticket to ride and she don't care because she's listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Beatles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed we'll give you a raw bone podcast. Stick to Wrestling is wicked good and it is the people's podcast. My name is John McAdam. Thanks for listening. A couple of things before we get rolling. If you enjoy the show, which you obviously do if you're listening, join our Facebook group. It's a really cool group. We talk wrestling. I got corrected. I thought that um, when Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero lost their hair in Mexico, they just like the, got the back of their hair cut. No, they butchered the top of their hair, too. Uh, we, t- we, we don't always stick to wrestling. We talked about your, our first Amazon purchases, so we've got that. Uh, also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. My basic value on Twitter is retweeting cool wrestling stuff, even though, once again, I don't entirely keep stick to wrestling. And I'm not going to stick to wrestling for a second here. I am happy and proud to announce that I got my second COVID shot. So I am not going to get this horrible virus. The next day, I had kind of a rough day, very fatigued, a lot of chills, but it's well worth it. If you have not gotten vaccinated, I I urge you to do so. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you why you should. We want nobody to get this thing. We don't want you to get it. And guess what? There are some people who cannot get vaccinated. I personally know a girl who cannot get vaccinated because she has underlying health issues. So if you get it, you might give it to her. Do it for yourself. You don't want to worry about getting this thing. And with that, I want to bring on our guest. I feel like I've known him for a long time, even though this is the first day we've ever spoken. But I, I used to read his letters in The Observer going back to the mid-80s. Dan Farron, welcome to Stick to Wrestling. Hello, John. Thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to be here to come out of the old 605 bullpen and, uh, and fill in with you today. Boy, I tell you, those, those uh, letters in The Observer... I like to go back and burn a few of those. I went into, <laughs> you know, that's a long time ago. I started reading The Observer in 1987. So, my God. Uh, yeah, I was, uh, you can actually kind of watch me grow through the letter section of, uh, of, of The Observer. I know the feeling. <laughs> Some of those letters, you just want to be like, oh, God, why did I do that when I was 21 years old? We started, it sounds yeah. like we started getting it right around the exact same time I got it. I started getting it the very end of 1986. Yeah, I, uh, I found it. Uh, what happened was uh, a friend of mine, uh, the late great Eric Caden, who had a wonderful uh, place out here called uh, the Hollywood uh, bookstore, uh, Hollywood book and poster. He had a, uh, um, uh, a bunch of uh, you know, uh, pictures and stuff here. And I went in one day to see his, uh, what he had new in the store and he had this Wrestling Observer sitting on the counter, and I looked at it, and he said, take it. He says, it, it's really good. It would give you a lot of information about wrestling. So I looked at it, and uh, I, I basically signed up for a subscription. And s- silly me, I didn't look at it that closely. Uh, I thought it was monthly because there was so much information in there. And it was so big that it was just a monthly newsletter. And all of a sudden, I, I, I got it like a second week in a row, and I thought, boy, this is heaven. I remember 
on some jobs because there was, you know, there was no internet back then and, and the magazines were real sporadic. I would actually drive home <laughs> from work at lunch and pick it up on a Friday and then drive back to work so I had something to read and, and hide in the bathroom the rest of the afternoon on Friday. Oh, I have read The Observer on Saturday night at a restaurant in front of my girlfriend. I was bad. I, I did the same thing with my wife, actually. But we were already married for a couple of years, which is kind of funny because I never told my wife I was a wrestling fan before we got married. I didn't spring that on, to her, on her until after we were married. Smart move. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I even turned her into a fan, so that was kind of cool. That's a positive. So aren't you also the late, great Dan Farron? I am the late, great Dan Farron. This will be my, my big claim to fame is that uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Danny Wolf, was on a podcast, and he called me up, and he said, I was on uh, Mike Lano's podcast, and at the end, he said, and, and this is dedicated to uh, the late Dan Farron. <laughs> and I said, and I said, didn't you tell, correct Mike? And he goes, no, I thought it was kind of funny, which gives you the idea of the kind of friends I have. you know. <laughs> and, but not only did Mike do it once, he actually did it twice. And everybody just gets the biggest kick out of that story. And a couple of years ago, Kyle Flower Alley, I, I went up to Mike and I said, hey, um, I, I want to tell you this story. And, and I want to kind of thank you for the, the, uh, the fame you had given me. Uh, and I told him and he got really embarrassed by it. He says, oh, I'm going to issue an apology. And I said, no, 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 Mike, because I'm knowing Mike that that would turn out to be the worst thing in the world. Uh, by then, everybody would think I was dead. Uh, I said, all I want from you is I, I want... <laughs> I want you to pose with the picture and I'm going to act like a ghost and I want you to be scared because you read into the late Dan Farron. So we took that picture and I had that picture and I think it's great, but uh, yeah, it's actually, and actually recently on one of the podcasts, Brian was talking to Jim Cornette and they brought up my name a, a couple of times over different matters in the last few weeks. And uh, he said, Dan Farron and uh, Jim said, are Dan Farron. So Mary, my wife, Mary Lou says now she now calls me, uh, our late Dan Farron. So that's how the, the late Dan Farron, our late Dan Farron. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my, my nickname. It's really funny because it, it, when I run into people who are outside of wrestling and they're with me and somebody calls me the late Dan Farron, I have to tell that story over and over and over again. And then the, the deal is one day I really will be the late Dan Farron. Uh, and I hope people after that still refer to me as the late Dan Farron. The late great Dan Farron. Dan, you will be missed. And I will dedicate a <laughs> memorial show to you in the very near future. Uh, I want to know more about that. you. Um, not, wait a minute, not, not, not near future, Mike. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about Mikey. Not, not, not the near future, John. Let's don't, let's don't, let's not rush anything. I still <laughs> think I'm 35 in my head. <laughs> I forget what it's like to be 35. But anyway, I want to know more oh, about. Oh God, like, where did, where were you born? Where did you grow up? All that good stuff. How, and I asked permission for this sure. before we got on. How old are you? I am 65 years old. I turned 65 on January 13th this year, just in time to get my uh, COVID vaccination. So I know Excellent. exactly what you're saying. All right. Uh, I was born in Evan. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I was like, go ahead. Where you f Go ahead. Keep going. Oh, I, I was born in Evansville, Indiana. I have a great wrestling tradition of Evansville, Indiana, though I never got a chance to go to the matches there. I, we left at a fairly early age, though the very first time I ever saw professional wrestling was in Evansville, Indiana. I'm going to peg it being like 1959, 1960. Wow. Uh, my, my church, St. Teresa, uh, was having a, uh, a carnival outside. And I was sitting on my dad's shoulders. 
And uh, there, I remember these, I, I remember this is weird, how you forget certain things and, you know, it, it, they, they leave your memories. But I remember seeing this orange glow and there were these two guys in a ring in black tights and they were punching and kicking each other. And every time they'd hit the mat, it would make a loud noise and it scared me. And my dad looked up to me and said, don't be scared, Danny. It's not real. So the, here's the thing is, I have never, ever had a period in my life where I thought professional wrestling was real. I knew it wasn't real because my dad told me it wasn't real. So why should I believe it? So, I mean, I just, it's just something that I gravitated to eventually, but I never once thought it was real, but that didn't spoil anything for me as a kid. So I grew up there in, in Evansville. My uh, father was in the moving industry. We moved to Maryland. And when I say we moved to Baltimore, we didn't live in the wire portion of Baltimore. We <laughs> lived in the pasty white suburbs of Baltimore. Uh, out there in, in that area there. I became a wrestling fan in 1971. I was spinning past the dial on a Saturday afternoon, like a lot of guys did, and came across uh, the WWF wrestling. And at this point, uh, Channel 45 was a brand new UHF station, and they had all the, the old offshoot shows like Sea Hunt and, and the Highway Patrol and stuff like that. And they got wrestling, I guess, for the longest time, for several years there, even though the WWF was, was running, they weren't running in the Baltimore area. So they came back and Pedro Morales had just become the champion. And I was kind of fascinated and fixated. I mean, I knew about wrestling before. I mean, even as a non-wrestling fan in my early teens or whatever, I knew who Bruno San Martino was just from the publicity. But I got hooked on this and I started watching. And Chief J. Strongbow was my very first popular wrestler. Uh, which was really great until the time came many years later that I met Chief J. Strongbow. <laughs> and it was one of those stories where they say you shouldn't meet your idols because I, I really, really would have rather had a more interesting conversation. It was a spot show in Irvine, and he was standing in the back, and it was a very small crowd on a Saturday afternoon. I walked up to him and said, Chief, I have to tell you, I'm a real big fan. I've really enjoyed uh, your wrestling over the years. Thank you so much. Uh, can I get an autograph? And I handed him the program, and he signed his name real quick, scribbled it, handed it back to me, turned away from me and went, uh, and that was it. Wow. Uh, that was my big, uh, big exciting meeting with chief J Strongbow. But, uh, I, that's, I remember a lot of those shows as a kid still from heart and started watching it, but I never went to see wrestling in downtown Baltimore because it was too far to drive. My father wasn't interested in it. So we never got to do that. When I graduated high school, uh, my family moved out to, uh, San Bernardino, California. And that would have been in uh, July of 1974. And uh, I, the first thing I did, we got in Saturday. The first thing I did was go looking for the, the Channel 13 KCOP Los Angeles wrestling show because I had read so much about Freddie Blassie, John Toll, Mill Mascaris, and all these guys. And it was really fascinating to me and exciting to me because having watched those old shows, which I admit when they were on the network, I used to watch those shows anyway. And I know that they were just one squash match after another, and people were bored by them, and, and nothing really happened unless uh, there was an angle being set up. But there was something very comforting about watching those shows again. It, it really brought me back to my youth. Oh, yeah. And um, so, so, I, so I started watching uh, the, the Channel 13 shows, and I would watch Channel 34, uh, which was the Spanish-language channel, which had the Olympic shows on Wednesday and would repeat them Saturday mornings. Uh, and all of a sudden this whole new world opened up for me and I started watching these shows and, and they were wild. They were crazy to me because all kinds of things were happening 
because I wasn't used to a, a studio TV show. I was used to the old WWF show, like I said. And I uh, started watching that, got hooked on it, and then found out that the LA uh, club ran San Bernardino every Sunday night at 7 o'clock. And from October of 1974, and religiously until uh, about the spring of 1976, I went down there every Sunday night. It's one of my fondest memories, especially in wrestling. It is my favorite years. I, I think those years when you first start to become a wrestling fan and you get to, to watch wrestling in person, it becomes your favorite time. The 70s are my favorite time uh, for, uh, to, to watch wrestling. And we went, I went down there every Sunday night by myself at 7 o'clock, paid 3 bucks. And I saw John Tolis, I saw Andre the Giant, I saw Roddy Piper debut, I saw all these great, I saw the Hollywood Blondes and the Infernos and J.C. Dykes and, and Black Gordon and the Great Goliath. And there was not, wasn't a bad seat in the house. And it was weekly. I mean, it was weekly live wrestling, you know, less than 15 minutes from where I lived. Uh, and it was always over by 9 o'clock or 9.30. So I was always back, you know, before, before it was late. And I just, I still can, you know, I can't tell you my phone number off the top of my head, but I can still tell you the results of the first show I saw. You know, that's the amazing thing about it. Do you need to jump in, John? I know I, I could talk forever. Is there any other questions you wanted to jump into or should I keep going? No, I'm, I'm very interested in this, but I have one, one question. <laughs> I have yeah. been told that Gordon and Goliath were the Midnight Express slash Rock and Roll Express of their era. They were that great a team. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. I will tell you that uh, I joked about it this year when the Wrestling Observer Awards came up. I, I told people, I said, if I could vote, my first five choices would be Black Gorman, the Great Goliath, Black Gorman, the Great Goliath, Black Gorman, the Great Goliath. They were the, I, I probably have seen them wrestle because of that. I probably have seen them wrestle 30 or 40 times in person. They were just an amazing team. The fluidity, uh, two very different kind of guys. I've seen them work heel. I've seen them work face. Uh, in fact, some of my favorite matches. If I wish, uh, if I could go back and capture something. You talk about heat. Now, this was a fifteen hundred seat arena. San uh, Bernardino was, but I remember on a hot June night watching Babyface Gordon and Goliath with Louis Talay in the corner going up against the Hollywood Blondes, Jerry Brown and Buddy Roberts with Oliver Humperdinck in the corner. And the heat in that place was just off the hook. I mean, I was drenched in sweat when I came out of there. And after the Blondes left, the Infernos, the last uh, incarnation of the Infernos came in town with J.C. Dykes. And that was, again, that, that continued that. And then Gorbin and Goliath, of course, turned heel like they have to. But uh, I've watched them, and uh, I, you know, I, I make it a goal all the time to push Black Gorman and the Great Goliath, because not a lot of videotape uh, exists of them. And uh, I think that they are, are, they're my favorite tag team of all time. They are, in my opinion, one of the top 10 tag teams of all time. Uh, I can't say enough about them. And what, what, what kills me is you used to go to the wrestling matches by yourself. I could not imagine yeah. doing that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm kind of a lone wolf type of guy. I, I used to go to the movies by myself. I did stuff. I, I, I really, uh, I, I figure when I go to these places by myself, I'm really with my best friend because uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy it. And I didn't really know anybody else that was into wrestling. I, I mean, I, I even went to some of the, the LA shows down here when the WWF moved into town, the sports arena by myself, because I, my wife, I, I took her to it and she enjoys it, but she didn't always want to go. 
But uh, I used to go there and I would talk. I mean, here's the thing was, it was like family almost, a kind of weird, toxic family. Uh, the San Bernardino <laughs> Arena, the same guys. You saw the same people every week. You saw the same security cops there every week. And they would talk and they did something that continues, a tradition that continues in wrestling to this day. And that is they basically put down the decade uh, that they were currently in and said the, the last decade was better. So in the 70s, the ringsiders were telling me about, oh, you should have seen Rito Romero. Oh, you should have been here for Enrique Torres. You should have been here for these guys today. Yeah, they're okay. But they're no, nowhere near as good as they were. And then they would tell me that their grandparents who would bring them. And that's, here's the thing. San Bernardino Arena started running shows weekly in, in the 1930s. So it was a long until they closed down in the, in the 80s or whatever. There was like 40 years of weekly shows, almost without interruption going on the San Bernardino Arena. So then, you know, these people would say, and then when they were there in the 60s, their parents were telling them about Luthes and Gorgeous George, you know, from the 60s. So, I mean, that's something that always goes on. The wrestling you first see when you're, when you're a kid, when you first become a fan, automatically becomes the best wrestling you've ever seen. And I enjoy wrestling to this day. There's a lot of things I watch still from time to time when I get the chance. But there's nothing as magical to me about as a, those, uh, wrestling in the 1970s. I mean, Jack Briscoe, Dory Funk Jr., Terry Funk, these guys were always uh, bigger than life to me. When I got a chance to meet Dory Funk two years ago at Cauliflower Alley, my wife and I were in the elevator and uh, he and Marty got in. We started riding up and all of a sudden a man in his sixties becomes a five-year-old child again. It's like, you know, I saw you wrestle. I'm going to come see you tomorrow. I really like you. You know, it's like <laughs> you, want, you want to be so cool <laughs> and, and real and really so cool with these guys. But I, I couldn't, he, he was just somebody who was bigger than life to me. And, and that was always the, the exciting part of, 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 of that generation for me is all those guys. And I'm the kind of guy, if I read, if I see something, I like it. I want to research and read more about it. So I would go to use bookstores and, uh, and find old wrestling magazines from the sixties and seventies. And this is also back when like pro wrestling illustrated used to run repeat articles from, from earlier. And I wanted to learn as much about wrestling history as I possibly could. I don't think a lot of people do that now as much. Uh, and I can understand why the, the motivation probably isn't there, but, uh, yeah, I became a real big fan of wrestling based on that. But though, even though when I was watching the other stuff, I always read the magazines and then the observer helped kind of bridge what I kind of figured out. I mean, it was really easy to see after a while. I mean, I remember Jerry Brown of the Hollywood Blonde standing in the back because he would stand in the back of the San Bernardino Arena. And this little girl came up to him and wanted an autograph. He just kept ignoring her and she <laughs> refused to move. She just stood there and stood there and stood there. And finally he looked down and he says, okay, but don't tell anybody. And he signed it for and she went away. Now, you know, you talk about having to be cool in front of the wrestlers and sometimes you just can't. I was just on the Facebook group and we were talking about, I mentioned that in 1983, you know, 38 years ago today, I saw Bob Backlund versus Ivan Koloff in the Boston Garden in a match that was mm-hmm. so good that the crowd, it was like 35, 40 minutes of just awesome wrestling that transcended yeah. what usually went on in the Boston Garden. And the crowd gave the match itself a standing ovation. So fast yeah. forward, maybe four or five years later, I'm in a van with Ivan Koloff and I had to act too cool to tell him that story. And <laughs> I regret it. I really regret it because, yeah. but at the same time, I kind of know that that would have been just given 
the atmosphere, given the, the, the culture, like it kind of would have been an uncool thing to say, and that sucks. Well, you know, it really is hard. I found that I started sometime in the 1990s. I, I became a referee out here. And then uh, eventually I did a little promoting myself, and I got the reputation uh, of being really good at running a, re- a dressing room. So in the 2000s, I started working dressing rooms. And my whole feeling was I, I did that a lot, and I think I became every every uh, commissioner for every independent group out here to the point where I would start to do the introduction, say good evening and welcome to, and I would have to look at the sign because I didn't know what alphabet letters were up there this week, Wow, uh, who I was working for. Uh, you know, it was like, is this the G W what, what the hell is this group? Okay. <laughs> and uh, I did this, this show with MPW about 10 years ago and they had Roddy Piper on. Now, I had seen Roddy Piper's debut at the San Bernardino Arena. Uh, I had seen him in his early days. I watched him transition from, you know, a a baby face on his way to Portland to becoming uh, the lead heel there. And it was just amazing and magic. I mean, he just, he just, everybody just immediately hated him and, and they had to get him out of there. And he came in there. I was working the show and I said to the guys, I said, "Um, is anybody, waiting for Piper outside in the parking lot. And they said, no. And I said, you should have somebody waiting for Piper in the parking lot. He's a big star. This is always so weird. A lot of the guys who do shows, they have a big star on or whatever, and they don't realize you really need to kind of do something to make him kind of feel special. Yeah. Uh, I said, I'll go out and wait for him. So I went out and I waited for him and he pulled up and he got out and I said, hi. And I said, okay. I said, I I know I can do this where I can talk to him about this and be kind of cool. You know, <laughs> because I, you know, I'd seen him for so long. And I, so we started talking. I came on in and said, this is, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. I said, I got to tell you. And that, I was really pleased because he was also one of the nicest men. I, I met him twice. One of the nicest men uh, in wrestling. I, I found him fascinating. We walked in and we were talking about this. And I, I wanted, I thought, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to give him just a little bit of information that I, that I know about his background without being like drooling or something. Yeah. And I told him a little bit and we, and that was kind of cool. We walked in and I said, we were about to go into the dressing room. I said, hang on one second. I said, I, I want to introduce you to the dressing room. And I feel that's very important to do, especially with people. Uh, I've, I've done that over the years with, with people who, who have worked really hard and deserve that recognition when they walk in the dressing room. And he said to me, he says, well, they know who I am. Oh man. And I said, I said, trust me, no one who's ever seen you will ever forget you. Stay here one second. I walked in, introduced him, and he walked in, and everybody just, you know, uh, freaked out. Everybody, everybody became a mark. Everybody became a kid. There was nothing wrong with that. And he was so gracious. He talked to everyone. He talked to everyone about their matches. He talked to, uh, he talked to them all over the place. And at the intermission, I brought some friends back to the dressing room who were not even big wrestling fans, but were gigantic fans of him for the movies and stuff. And I walked in and said, I have a couple of friends. They would love to meet you. Are you okay with that? And he said, sure, bring them on in. I brought them in. I have these friends to this day, 10 years later, won't stop talking about that moment. They love that moment so much. They won't stop talking about it. And he posed for pictures with everyone. And when it came time for him to do his spot, I kind of like, I don't know his bodyguard, but I wanted to keep, you know, we, we wanted to keep people away from him uh, because of course we were in this, this little this little building in an industrial park. So we walked around to the back of the parking lot and he said, where are we at? I said, we're in Woodland Hills. And he goes, and he asked me a couple other questions and he said, okay. And he walked over to the wall 
And he stood there and he started talking. He started going through it. He started becoming Roddy Piper. He started working in, okay, well, I'm, I'm really happy to be here in Woodland Hills, whatever. And I, what I did was for five minutes, I kept everybody away from him so he could concentrate and do this. And then he turned to me and says, I'm ready. I said, okay. And we went ahead and did it. And he, it was like 300 people, but he treated it like it was Madison Square Garden. And several years later, a friend of mine was doing a pilot, which was kind of like a talk soup type show. And the deal was they were going to have Roddy as the host. And my friend said, I, I have a bit part. I'd like you to, to come on and do a cameo. And I said, sure. And I came on and did this little thing. And again, he was so gracious to everyone there. He was gracious to the entire crew. He told them stories. He talked to them. We talked for a few minutes. And again, I, I didn't feel comfortable talking to him about a lot of wrestling stuff because I just kind of, he was working and I wanted him to be comfortable, but I have two pictures from that. And at cauliflower alley, two years ago, his daughter and his wife were there. And I walked up afterwards and said, you know, I want to show you this picture because I said, I have this picture on my phone. I've had it on my phone for 10 years. Roddy was so kind to me and so nice to me. Uh, I just want to let you know that uh, it really was kind of a high point in my life. And Teal, his daughter said, Ariel, Thank you very much, because when I hear these stories, I realize how much I miss my father. What? Uh, that's, that's, that's simply awesome. Roddy Piper <clears throat> is someone that I have yeah. never met. I never got to meet him, and, and now he's gone. And He was always a favorite of mine, and not to overplug the Facebook group, but someone posted the video of Roddy when he first started in the Mid-Atlantic area. This is the beginning. Mm-hmm. I know he's, he's got there like the end of 1980. And this is the beginning of 81 when he did this phenomenal interview where he comes out in a tuxedo and he at one point opens up the tuxedo and he's got Ric Flair's or well, not, not no longer Ric Flair's Roddy Piper's United States heavyweight championship belt. And right. I mean, talk about just broad Rick, Rick, I want to say Rick made him a star, but Roddy made himself a star in this, in this video. I mean, it was just fantastic. And both guys, bounced off each other it was it was what really might have been in my opinion the greatest segment in pro wrestling history i'm 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 not i'm being serious when i say that right well roddy was the ultimate dancing partner if you were lucky enough to get to get booked into a program with roddy piper boy oh boy were you made i mean you would have to really work hard to screw that up i mean you know hulk hogan will you in, in in the few moments of lucidity that hulk hogan still has left he will tell you that Roddy Piper, you know, <laughs> Hulkamania couldn't have existed without Roddy Piper. And Piper had a lot to do with making the Guerrero family out here. His matches with Chavo Guerrero, and some people say that they did too many of them. They might have. But it was such a strong memory for everybody. I remember uh, at Wrestle Reunion many years ago, they had a, an old-timers battle royal. And they had all these different guys. Mike Graham was in there, and Terry Funk was in there, and Piper was in there. And Chavo Guerrero was in there. And there was a moment in the Battle Royal where it was kind of like a lot of guys been thrown out. And Chavo turned and, and Roddy turned and they looked at each other and they both started sizing each other up. And you could feel the heat going through the room from the older fans who had been around. And you felt this undercurrent of people going, oh, like that. And, 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 and literally some people jumped on their feet and started screaming. You know, because it became, it, it brought back such memories for everybody at that point. Because those two together, I wish there was more video. The video that exists is from later in, uh, in like the late 70s or whatever. But that early stuff, man, oh man, 
Chavo and Roddy because they, I think they went through almost like 52 matches, it feels like in one year. Uh, it was absolutely amazing to watch. And uh, one of the reasons why I sat by the back door at San Bernardino Arena was because if a riot broke out, I could run straight out the building and, and be in the parking lot within a second if I needed to. And uh, many times I saw Piper, even with the, the lowliest opponent, the, almost, the, almost uh, set that place on fire. Now, here's my question. Why did you stop going in 1979? Well, you say you stopped going in 1976. Why? I'll tell you why. I met my wife. Uh, Good <laughs> we reason. We were in college together. I met, yeah, I met her. And suddenly I had something better to do on Sunday. No. Uh, so but, but, uh, what happened was I, I came down to, uh, you know, it's like everybody else. We all fall away from it from time to time. Uh, I mean, I still read The Observer. I'm not The Observer. I still read the magazine. I still watched it a little bit. But also at that point, uh, the L.A. territory was, was on a, a long, painful stretch down uh, at that point. They were going to go on for another, about another five or six years, and then they were going to end. And, and the talent just wasn't there anymore. And I would, and also they lost. They, they first they lost their uh, Channel Thirteen uh, in 1975. They stayed on the Spanish International Network, but that got bounced around because uh, on TV cable came into popularity out here uh, not soon after that, and uh, that was the channel that it would run during the day, and then the way the ancient cable TV used to work, after seven o'clock you would flip a switch and it would go to pay TV. So the, the TV shows were, were relegated to early in the day and nobody was really watching. And then it just, it just kind of faded away. So there was no wrestling in LA for uh, like a year or so. What happened was what brought me back the first time was the WWF took over the contract for LA in, in late 82. And I finally decided in 1983 that I felt that uh, I wanted to go down and see the show. And I took my wife. Uh, down to the sports arena, and we saw the the WWF show. And she actually, I said to her, I said, "Here's the deal. I'm going to take you in here. If you, anytime you feel like you're upset or scared or whatever, or if it feels like, or if the wrestling people, <laughs> if, the, if the wrestling people make you nervous, honey, let me know. You know, <laughs> and we'll leave." But uh, she really enjoyed it. And those and those were were weird smorgasbord shows. Of, they would have Black Orb and the Great Goliath and and Paul Orndorff before he actually debuted and some of the guys from San Francisco. And, and what they did was they basically used the headliners were guys like Pat Patterson or guys that had like a West coast cred and, and they would do that. But I, my wife is still to this day. If I, if I opened the door and, and yelled at her in the other room, she would start yelling back about this. But uh, what happened was the main of uh, the, the last match on the show was Mil Mascaris against Ivan Koloff and Koloff got juice. And uh, at that, he was walking over, the lights came up and the show was over. And this was back, it's hard to believe the way the WWF is today, WWE, uh, is that there were no barricades. There was just these poles with string on them. So you could get really, really close to the wrestlers. So Koloff is on his way back to the dressing room and he's all bloody. And I said to my wife, take a look at this. I was going to try to explain to her that this wasn't fake blood. This was actual real blood. Now, what happened was the crowd surged forward. And they kind of pushed us. And what I did was I wound up kind of pushing my wife. And she swears to this day that I tried to push her into a bloody Ivan Koloff. I did not do that. But if I, I, if I went in the other room right now and asked her, I, if I went in the room that right now, my wife would scream, no, you didn't. She hasn't forgotten that, you know, at all. But she quickly became a fan. And then when I started doing shows, she would come to the shows and, and of course, boo me 
that's what she liked to do. Nice. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I don't know where to begin. I, I started going to the shows at the Boston Garden almost forty years ago to this date. Okay. And wow. I just remember my, my first experience there. I had been there for Celtics games. I had been there for a couple of Bruins games. Wrestling was a totally different crowd. And you had to be real careful at the old Boston Garden. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't until 1989 when I brought, finally brought my girlfriend at the time to a wrestling show. Because, all right, you know, it, it's calmed down a lot. But, like, you know, I... I, my understanding is, you know, Los Angeles. Well, I don't know what it was like for the, for the WWF, but I mean, I've heard stories about the Olympic. It was a pretty guy. I've heard it was a pretty crazy place. Well, the Olympic was referred to as the bucket of blood for a good reason. Oh uh, man. It, it, you know, they had, um, I cannot recommend more the documentary that was just done uh, and was, it was released. And I watched it when they did the, uh, one of the, the film festivals out here. Uh, if it's around or when it pops up, get a chance to see it. Because the guys that did the Olympic Auditorium documentary uh, did an amazing job. They basically, and I thought at first they were might be biting off too much because they were going to do boxing, wrestling, roller derby, uh, and music, and some movies or whatever. But they wound up basically telling the story of Los Angeles through uh, through the culture of boxing and wrestling and whatever. And and, and truthfully, boxing is the, the main focus of, of the documentary, but there's a lot of wrestling. It's one of Roddy Piper's final interviews. And I saw bits and pieces of it uh, like two years ago. And uh, it really is just one of the best wrestling documentaries I've ever seen because it really uh, paints a, a great picture. And it talks about, I mean, there's been many, many situations where I've heard, you know, the, the, they talk about it in the documentary. I mean, uh, especially, especially a lot of the uh, the Latin fans would get really upset and uh, would pee into cups and throw them from the upper deck. Yeah, um, I heard about those. They, they, now, I went to one of the AAA shows here when they when they oversold the sports arena and we had people sitting in the aisles. That was one of the few times that I was actually a little nervous. It was uh, it was during the middle of the Conan, Paraguayo, Jake Roberts thing or whatever was going on, and it was a packed house and. I remember this little kid sitting on his father's shoulders. His father put him up on his shoulders so he could see. And everybody stood almost the entire show. That's how hot the crowd was. And I guess when the kid went up father's shoulders, uh, he was blocking some people. So people started throwing cups at this kid. And I guess oh the poor God. kid was screaming for his dad to put him, for his dad to put him down. And, and the father couldn't hear him. And it, all of a sudden, it was like a carnival game. Uh, where they're just throwing cups at this kid. They took him down finally. And I looked over and Mike Tanay was sitting there, not to, to drop names, but I will in this situation. Mike Tanay was nearby us. And I looked over at him and Mike Tanay looked nervous. And I thought, for all the shows that Mike Tanay has been, if he looks nervous right now, I have a good reason to be nervous. Yeah. Uh, that was hysterical. I remember going, we were at a restaurant nearby and Ron Scholar, who was the promoter of that show, was there. And I remember Jake Roberts and DDP came in. And Jake Roberts started screaming because they were going to San Diego the next night. Scholar, he said, Scholar, you better have protection down there for me because if you don't have prote protection down there for me, I'm going to drag your ass down there and let you lead me to the ring back and forth. <laughs> um, but uh, the fans, the fans, I, I saw in San Bernardino, it was kind of weird because it was almost like the guys were there every week. So they kind of became your home team. 
So the interaction with the fans was funny. It was during the matches, they would get all upset. But after the matches, in most cases, they were pretty cool about it. One time I saw Crusher Verdue fighting. And, and the thing was, with the San Bernardino Arena, it was originally built for boxing. So the first row, you didn't want to sit in the first row. Because the first row, you could put your foot up and touch the ring. That's how close the ring was to you. And it was a, a bolted down ring. So it wasn't going anywhere. And there was no barricade between it. So guys would fly out into the first row on a regular basis. So you took your chances sitting there. But uh, there was a, a masked man named Mr. Mexico, and he was wrestling Crusher Verdue, and they were fighting outside the ring. And I, this guy jumped up, and he reared back, a, a big guy, and punched Crusher Verdue right in the face. And it was like out of a movie. What? Crusher Verdue stopped and just, looked at, and just looked at him. Just looked at him. I mean, it hit like, whack, like a rifle shot. And everybody was like, whoa. And Verdue just stood there and looked at him. And then the two cops came down and grabbed him. You know, but they were that close. I mean, I have pictures. And, and, and back then, well, what happened was at intermission, the kids would jump in the ring and bounce around. And you can see the pictures because, you know, from those, those old days like that in the 70s, the guys would get up on the, the kids and, and people would get up on the apron to get autographs before the matches. And the matches would end. And I have a picture, uh, my favorite match at the San Bernardino Arena. And after it was over with, it's Greg Valentine and Bobby Shane sitting in the ring. And there's kids running around behind them. You know, and they're still sitting in the, in the ring at that point. Uh, and, 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 you know, I mean, that's just, it was just the fan interaction was different. But the fans in San Bernardino would start talking. They talk, I remember John Tolis was standing behind us one time. And, uh, and somebody turned back and said, hey, John, my wife thinks that you look like Burt Reynolds. He kind of did. told us without missing a beat. Yeah. And told us without missing a beat said, no, Burt Reynolds looks like me. That's <laughs> and, uh, and actually, the very first time a wrestler ever spoke to me like, like, like smart, like, like an insider type thing, was Edouard Carpentier, of all people. Edouard Carpentier, I was sitting in the back row, and if there was chairs open, people, sometimes the wrestlers would come back and sit there. And Edouard Carpentier says, do you mind if I sit here? And I said, fine. And he sat down next to me. And he was watching this match. And, and the match was going on. And the, the one guy went for started to go for the figure four. And uh, Carpentier turned to me and said, ah, the finish. And got up and left. So that was the very first time. I, I, I feel very honored that Edouard Carpentier basically uh, broke my uh, kayfabe cherry. Uh, <laughs> to some extent by talking smart to me at that point. But it was a different kind of crowd. I mean, yeah, the crowds would get upset, but they also, uh, at the same time, felt a kinship to all the wrestlers because they were all local guys to some extent. But no, the, the Olympic was the Olympic uh, was was just another. I mean, there's a there's a horrible story in in the documentary about a boxer who uh, actually was uh, killed in the ring, and uh, they didn't know he was dead yet, but they were taking him out on a stretcher, and the fans started throwing stuff at him on the stretcher. As they took like, him out of the building, like throw things at a corpse, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that just gives you the, uh, the the idea of that. But that changed a lot. Now, the only time I ever see that kind of stuff is at at certain lucha shows. But in most cases, uh, unless it gets really, really out of hand, uh, that that's a period that's kind of gone. And in a way, in a strange sort of way, I kind of miss it. <laughs> you know? No, I, I again, I totally understand. I mean, the Boston Garden was a, a crazy old arena. And it's just a lot safer now, but in a weird way, you, you miss that atmosphere. Now, I have a, a morbid yeah. 
fascination with Los Angeles wrestling, like the, the down period, um, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, after LaBelle crashed and burned and here we're, we're talking Los Angeles, a giant city in itself, but then it has that endless urban sprawl. Okay. It's, it's a huge city. Yeah. It has two NBA teams. It basically has two major league baseball teams. Do they have, I think they have, they have like three hockey teams now. Am I, am I close? I don't really follow hockey. I, I think so. Yeah. Plus also you got to imagine there's also soccer teams or football teams and, and all that stuff going on. So yeah, there is something yeah. to do in LA, even, even when it's kind of quiet, like it is right now, but in its heyday and it's when things are, are up, there's something to do every night of the week. Right. And you know, at the time two NFL teams, and yet there was no major league professional wrestling in this giant city. It, 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 it blew my mind at the time. and It blows my mind now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons why it died. You know, Mike LaBelle was a guy that was interested in making money. He wasn't, even though he came from a promoting background, he wasn't a wrestler. And um, and he just, if, if it wasn't making money, he didn't care creatively how, how it worked. He would, he would cut corners. He would, that's why most all the videotapes, but then everybody did that or gone because it was too expensive to, to buy new videotapes. And who would want to watch wrestling again once they watched it one time? Uh, so, I mean, it, it's just that that little by little, the, the guys went off to greener pastures, and LaBelle couldn't pay as much as, as he did or wouldn't pay as much as he did. So the guys that were living there found it was fine, but it was hard after Moondog Main died and, and after Piper moved on and, and a lot of the other guys moved on. Uh, you were down to, to local guys, and they just weren't bringing the people in. They weren't making that connection as well as they did. And the trouble is, like I said, again, you got Disneyland, you got Knott's Berry Farm, you got Magic Mountain, you got something to do all the time. You really need, and, and in the 1950s and 60s, when I do my research on newspaper.com, which is one of the most relaxing things I do, you know, you see the names, the names that came through L.A. at one point at one time or another are just amazing. But as, as is most of the names that went through any territory, because everybody always moved on and moved around. But that was the whole thing was that it just, it just ran out of steam and they couldn't keep a, a decent roster. And there wasn't enough TV to really keep people's interest. And it just grinded to a complete halt. And, and when it was over, we had guys, and this is no offense to some of these guys because I'm friends with them, but the late Budokan, the late Pistol Pete, they weren't main event guys. They were really, you know, Billy Anderson is a great wrestler. Uh, he's, he's a really good, solid guy. But uh, they just weren't making that connection with a lot of fans, you know, and it wasn't really their fault. They just weren't getting the promotion um, from LaBelle that they, they should have at that time. Well, I mean, I, I, as someone who only knew Los Angeles <laughs> wrestling through the magazines, like I, when I first started getting magazines in 1976, I'm like, okay, this looks like a cool promotion. They've got Roddy Piper against Chavo Guerrero. They've got, you know, Al Madrill, Butcher Rashawn. They've got some guys. And it was like, after yeah. Piper left, it was almost like they, they didn't bring in anyone to replace him. And that always confounded me. And, and like I said, through the magazines, I see this thing going down the, the drain and, you know, they, they stopped getting virtually any coverage in the, in the, after magazines, but they would get the, some coverage in the Kiter magazines. And I would just look, I'm like, you know, 
the wrestling in Los Angeles looks like the wrestling in Vancouver, British Columbia. It, it just, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, no star wrestling. Yeah, it, it is. It is a, a sad mystery. And, and like I said, by that time, I had kind of fallen away. Like I said, I, I met my wife and I'd gone off to college and was just it just but it, it just lost its appeal. They, they weren't able to keep it going. And, you know, people say, oh, well, McMahon bought him out, but they would have they would have crashed and died anyway. Uh, it all it, it all started. It, it was such a, a, a slow 10 year decline. It all started after the Coliseum show with Tolos and Blassie. You know, Blassie and Tolos were both very upset about the um, the payoffs on that. And Blassie would come back from time to time and, and wrestle. But by that time, you know, we were you were getting in the 1978-79 Blassie, and he was beat to hell at that point. Uh, Tolis was always solid. Uh, Tolis was, you know, uh, that, that's why Tolis is my favorite wrestler of all time. Uh, I, I could watch that guy a thousand times and he, and he kept, but he was always in great shape. Uh, he, he kept working it up until the early eighties or whatever. And, but he basically stayed around here. He didn't, he didn't, uh, venture that far except for those, you know, let, let's, let, uh, let's have a really good idea. Let's hire one of the best talkers in wrestling and not let him talk. And that's what the WWF did. You know, because even when you watch him on that on that uh, dumpster fire UWF show, at least he had some personality there. He was he he could kind of be himself. But the mainstays were all gone at that point, and they just could not keep that promotion um, afloat. And truthfully, Mike LaBelle wasn't interested in putting the money into it to, to keep it going. I mean, to me, if I'm if I'm Mike LaBelle and I'm promoting Los Angeles, I have it all to myself. I figure out. A way to make it work. Let me let me share a story I heard about John Tolos. Um, this is in '91, sure. right before he debuted. I'll I'll put it all together. This was in '91. A story started going around that John Tolos, who is a he's a borderline Hall of Famer in my opinion. He you know yeah, there's an argument exactly. to be made for him and to be in the Observer Hall of Fame. A story started going around that he was a gopher in Hollywood and. Right around, like right around the time I heard that story, he gets hired by the WWF, and I always thought I always thought those two things were connected. And if if it's true, like wow, I mean, the coach was a terrible, terrible gimmick, and he was not cut out for it. It was it was so bad. I think it had very little to do with him and more to do with the WWF. But if Vince heard the story that you know Holos has this kind of low life job in Hollywood. Hey, I'll give him a job. I mean, big thumbs up to to Vince if that is true. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, the, what happened was he was working as a studio driver, picking up packages and freight and boxes and 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 sets and things like that, which I believe was a union job. So I think he was doing okay at that point. I never heard any stories about him being down and out. I know he sold cars for a while. He actually uh, lived. Somewhere here in Woodland Hills, right now, only about several miles away from where I do. My wife and I would be driving sometimes, and he was always out jogging up and down, up near the Kaiser Hospital. And I would roll the window down and tell my wife to lean out the window and yell Golden Greek to him. And she would lean out the window and go, Golden Greek. And he'd go, Right here, baby. And that's crazy <laughs> thing. Because, they, <laughs> because, you know, they can never give that portion up. I heard he worked a lot, but every time I, I saw him in Cauliflower Alley, he was always, uh, he looked great. He looked very healthy. I, I never heard stories of him being down and out. 
but I know he bounced around and, and did a lot of jobs, um, not those kind of jobs, but did a lot of jobs, you know, after he uh, retired from wrestling. Uh, because, you know, let's face it, those guys there at that point, uh, I can't imagine being a wrestler in the in the 1950s or 60s because when that ended, well, I mean, at that point, your body's broken down. What what else can you do? You know, it, it, it's really, really hard. But, yeah, no, Tolis, I, I love Tolis. Man, I, I've seen Tolis wrestle 40, 50 times. I agree with you. I think at first I wasn't, wasn't that sure that, that he would be a complete Hall of Famer, but over the years, I'm, I'm hoping, I think he's supposed to go back on the ballot in a couple of years in a, in a different configuration, much like Chavo Guerrero, who's somebody else who I kind of think is uh, misunderstood as, as a champion. That's one of the things I do with the Observer. Uh, I, I finally, several years ago, got onto the Hall of Fame uh, ballot. And I have, you know, I, I have no trouble voting for, for more recent guys. So most of the time, I have a tendency to go back. Uh, I'm more interested in, in guys like Black Omer and the Great Goliath and, and Ricky. Um, Torres, Sputnik Monroe, those guys. I, I feel like without those guys, there is no wrestling now. I mean, they basically are, are the, the archetypes for all this stuff. And uh, I just worry that they're going to be forgotten. And that's one thing that, uh, that I, I think would be a shame because a lot of people, you know, a lot of even some of the older fans now, to them, wrestling begins in 1983. And there's so much of a rich, you know, uh, history behind that. And, uh, uh, you know, wrestling eats it young. And uh, I, would, I would hate to see uh, all that stuff forgotten, especially from a, from a sport that went out of its way never to, to recognize its history or keep really good records. You know, you mentioned Dory Funk Jr. before. I, I got to meet Dory Funk Jr. very briefly in 1999. They were having their developmental talent, like Kurt Angle, Edge, guys like that. They did a show in upstate New Hampshire, and I wasn't going to go until I found out that, you know, Dory Funk Jr. was probably going to be there. So I recognized Marty Funk, and I walk up to her. (laughs) No, you know what? Marty was super, super nice to me. She was such a sweetheart. And and I have heard that not everyone (laughs) had that same experience, but she was an absolute sweetheart to me. So I just walked over. I'm like, ma'am, I'm sorry to bother you. Are you Marty Funk, Dory Funk Jr.'s wife? And she said, yes. We started talking and she said, you know, she was really happy that I remembered Dory because and her exact words just about were, you know, no one remembers guys like Dory and Terry anymore. And I'm like, you know, yeah. I'm like, man, I'm sorry to tell you, they don't even remember Brett and Sean at this point. <laughs> but it, you yeah, know, it's, exactly. it's true. I mean, if, if it happened before you were a kid, it may as well have happened in the Stone Age. And I have learned that there's a lot of cool stuff that happened before I started watching in 1976. And getting back to something you said, I saw a match, I think it was from Hollywood, that had the tag team of John and Chris Tolos. And, you know, I've seen maybe mm-hmm. two or three of their matches. That was a great team. They were a fantastic team. Uh, I've, I'm not, I've seen most of their older stuff. Uh, they, they did a run out here at one point. Uh, the Tolis brothers, I think, are, are again, an, another Hall of Fame team. But uh, the Tolis brothers, again, those guys, to me, when I go to Cauliflower Alley, the reason I love going to Cauliflower Alley is that, yeah, I mean, I enjoy talking to the guys from the 80s and the 90s and whatever. But I get excited meeting Nick Kozak. I, I get excited meeting, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, the older guys and, 
that I that I've seen growing up or were bigger than life to me. It really and truly is. It's one of the most exciting things because there's so much history there. And like, like you said, it, it, it disappears. And I would hate to say that. I mean, Terry has a, has a, a nice run on, uh, on a mortality, uh, immortality because of the fact that, that uh, of all the stuff that exists of him. And, and uh, I did a, a couple of shows and met him a couple of times. And, and he absolutely is amazing and, and, a, and a delight to talk to and, uh, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But he, I remember one time my wife was talking to him and uh, she was talking about the, the infamous, uh, you know, uh, empty arena match with Lawler. And he goes, how did you see that? And she said, I saw it on video. And he goes, God damn that Lawler always finding a way to make money off of me when I don't get anything. <laughs> that sounds like scary. <laughs> that does exactly. But I mean, these guys, I mean, like, for example, let me ask you, what's your favorite match, John? That My you were favorite match of all time? Yeah, I would probably say Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat from Chi-Town Rumble. Tomorrow, it might be the third match from that series, but I'm, yeah. I'm going with the match from Chicago. Yeah. What was yours? Yeah. No, uh, well, actually, mine, the reason I asked that is because this is one of the things I believe is all of us have been around doing this a long time. We're all, quote-unquote, as smart as we smart can be. But I always find the matches that stay in my mind the longest, the ones that are my favorite, are not always, now in your case, it's different, not exactly always technical masterpieces. Yours is. But also, I, I will guarantee you that part of the reason why that match is so memorable to you is because of the emotional connection. That oh, yeah. There was something, and I, and I remember, I remember, and that match is amazing. I remember I was working late, and it was on, uh, and my wife was taping it, and she said, get in here, this is great. <laughs> when I walked in the front door, uh, my favorite match that I saw live was in January of, uh, and I talked about this before, but I will still talk about it because it's, it's I, I actually snapped a couple pictures one of the few times I ever did that. Uh, it was in January of 1975, Andre the Giant and Edouard Carpentier against Bobby Shane and Greg Valentine in the San Bernardino Arena. They had done an angle. I thought the roof was going to come off that place. It was by no means a technical masterpiece, but I remember... Andre, of course, being, I mean, again, this was, this was this guy. I, when I walked in the arena that night, he was getting coffee for the guys in the dressing room. And he put four cups between each finger and carried them back on one hand. That's and, crazy. Uh, I, 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 and, and he was like a brick wall. I just looked at him and this is him in his prime. And they came to the ring and Bobby Shane, who who died about a month after this match. It was, it was probably his last main event. I had heard about him in the magazine. And I think from one of the research I'd done, he was coming through from Australia. He had just finished in Australia. He was headed to Florida. And he did like, like a lot of the guys do. He stopped in to, to make a few bucks here and there. I always referred to that as kind of the uh, winter wonderland. There's a line in there where you can do the job if you're in town. And that's kind of what <laughs> a lot of those guys did at that point. They would just come through and do the job and leave. And Shane came in, he beat a local guy. He had a great match on TV, two out of three falls with Eduardo Carpante for the America's title, which he lost. Uh, he lost to Dennis Stamp for the TV title on TV, and then uh, sadly had to do a job for the, uh, the mighty Zulu Epic stiff uh, on TV, and then was gone. Didn't even hang around for the Battle Royal. But uh, I watched him 
And he was just so amazing. He became one of those guys that I always had tried to research and learn much more about because I found him fascinating, partially because of the sad ending to the story, but just he was so good. Just those few matches that I saw him in. And I wasn't, you know, I only been a fan for like five, six years, but you know, you see people like that and all of a sudden you go, there's something about this guy. This guy is really, really good. And Andre picked him up and held him over his head, straight up like he used to do. And above the ring in San Bernardino, because it was a boxing arena originally, was, was a, a, a big box with all the lights in it. And it had the uh, rounds on it, around it. They would light up whenever the round was going on. But he picked Shane up so high, Shane's feet kicked the lights out over the ring, threw the <laughs> lights out. That's and glass crazy. started to shower down. Glass started to shower down into the ring. And to me, that moment was kind of like Robert Redford hitting the home run in the natural. I, I mean, I hear the music behind, dun, 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 <laughs> you know. And that's when I think I became really, really hooked as, as, and I was going to be a fan for life was off of that moment. Uh, again, I remember the match. I don't remember it being a great technical classic, but there was something about that match. And I, I went to Greg Valentine a couple of years ago and showed him a picture. And he does what all the guys do when you say this. And, and it's true. I mean, to them, it was just another night at work. Uh, but I, I showed him the picture and I said, I just, this was a great match. And he looked at him and he goes, I teamed with Bobby Shane against Andre and Carpanti and San Bernardino. And I said, yeah. And he looks at the picture and he looks up at me. And, and, and Valentine is a lot funnier than, than people giving credit for. And he smiled and he goes, I bet that was a great match. Huh? And I said, you bet it was. <laughs> and that's that's the match that's the match that I always remember because of the emotion to it. And I find in things that that sometimes whether it be the crowd or, or whether the match the matches and and you know I can I can watch technical stuff and really appreciate it too. But again, you know I think we're all looking for that time when something can make us feel seventeen years old again. Uh, and that's one of the one of the things I remember about that. And and the same thing, you know, I remember those steamboat flare matches, I would love to see some of the earlier stuff that only exists on film and stuff. Because again, those matches, those matches, if you couldn't get sucked into those matches then you had no business watching wrestling, you know? Oh, totally. This is my favorite kind of episode of stick to wrestling where I have a guy like Dan just share what's in his head <laughs> because you've got so much good stuff up there. I'll tell you, I'm going to wrap up with and this hour this is yeah. always the fastest hour of my week i'm going to wrap up with a non-wrestling question you got to grow sure. up in la i got to grow up near yeah. boston and well occasionally in uh, new york like in the 70s and 80s those three cities had their own music scene like i don't think baltimore and tampa oh, yeah. really had their own music scene did you get into that at all like no. we had the cars we had the P peter dayton band we had the thrills you had the motels, you had the zeros, you had X, one of my all-time favorite bands. Like, did you ever get into that at all? Like, go to concerts or anything? I, I've gone to a lot of concerts. I, I will tell you that, you know, I saw, I saw the, the Go-Go's early. Uh, I, I saw a, a lot of those. I tell you what my music was in the 70s and into the 80s was stand-up comedy. One of the things that I was always hooked on as a kid was comedy. And I started going to the comedy store in the 70s. And this is when you had David Letterman, Robin Williams. They, they weren't David Letterman and Robin Williams yet. Uh, you had Jim Varney not being earnest, but, but doing stand-up comedy. Uh, you would get drop-ins from Richard Pryor, Rodney Dangerfield, Richard Belzer. 
And I became kind of a, a comedy junkie. And every Sunday night, my roommates and I, uh, college roommates, would go to the comedy store and you would pay $5 admission. And it was a two drink minimum. And if you drank apple juice, it was the cheapest way you could get out of the, of the, of the building. And uh, which may have eventually led to my diabetes. I'm not quite sure, but uh, <laughs> that may have drank all that apple juice, may have done that. But uh, I got a chance to see some amazingly great stand up comics, you know, uh, come through. And I, I saw Freddie Prinze when, when he was first starting out. Uh, I saw all those guys. So that kind of was my music. I still went to, I went to a lot of, I, I, I would go to a lot of concerts, you guys like Flo and Eddie or, or people like that. But um, I didn't, I, I'm, a, I'm a little bit, so I'm a little bit older than you. The, the music scene was really good here, but it, it wasn't really, uh, and also I had a lot of, I, my three of my four uh, college roommates were musicians. And, you know, it, after a while, I mean, I, you had to pick up stuff by osmosis, you know, uh, that way. But they were much more into, we went, used to go to this place called McCabe, which was an acoustic guitar shop that had a little uh, theater in the back. And I remember seeing Warren Zevon there. Uh, I remember seeing uh, Timothy Schmidt from Poco. So I got into a lot of, uh, of acoustic stuff, and uh, I would see a lot of those people there. My old college roommate used to actually play for Juice Newton at one point. Uh, love's been a little bit hard on me. So, uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I've been around that, but not as much with the music as I did with stand-up comedy. I am about to die of jealousy because you got to frequent the Los Angeles <laughs> Comedy Store back in its heyday. That is simply amazing. Uh, Dan, I can't thank you enough. It was a great episode. I can't wait to have you back. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, that's, I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, anytime, anytime. I'm, I, you know, I'm just an old guy hanging out in California. I'm, I'm available. <laughs> and I, if, I, if I get lucky, I retire next year, so I'll have a lot more time. So. There you go. All right. And once again, Dan, thank you. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Have a good week, everyone. This concludes our podcast day.